wait, hold on, let me like let me bump the backup recording. Here. Right, yeah. We actually Make did record sure. all of that shit in the backup recording. Oh good. Oh good. Oh fun. <laughs> fun, fun. <laughs> so you can and now the ba- everyone yeah. can hear Come our to shit our house, talking. Steal my SD card and you'll get to hear all that shit talking. <laughs> uh hi everybody hey hey so i'm shannon i'm john fred (laughs) all right i'm pinky hey i pinky i'm pinky Pinky. Pinky. now like kinky welcome to the morning zoo oh my Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Hi. Um vacation talk, I guess. Yeah, so I like turtles. Uh, me too. Oh, I love When turtles. we were on a hike, we were walking across this bridge and a bunch of kids, and one kid was like, I like turtles. He was, so how much fucking hiking did you guys do? Because that sounds like exhausting. 52.2. Something, something miles. That's exhausting. And it was the elevation, our total elevation. Gain. Like, you know, because you walk up and down hills. Elevation gain. Just Mm -hmm. add all the ups Mm -hmm. over three miles. Mm. It was. It was 14,853 feet. Less than three miles. Almost three miles. 54.2 54.2 miles. I'm sorry, I misspoke. 54.2 so, miles. Just a quick narrative. We drove through the night, arrived in Portland. We got to the rest stop. And at the rest stop, it was like, get back on the highway on I-95. AKA bathroom break. Or <laughs> take US-1. And I knew US-1 kind of hugs the coast. I'm like, well, let's just go that way. We got no place to be. He only knew that because of me. You only knew that because of me. What? That it goes up the coast. No. You're from Pittsburgh. I'm from Florida. I know what A1A is. And uh, do you? Did you know before me? Yeah. I I don't know. Probably not before you because. Right. Okay. You have many years' experience of life. Okay. Oh, wait. What? (laughs) Did you just wait? (laughs) Uh-oh. All right, back to- <laughs> don't, we don't, drove, don't, so we drove up the coast, and <laughs> we stopped. At, we found a beach in York, Maine, and it was like six o'clock in the morning, and it was like doggy hour, so it was low tide. And there was like twenty five dogs on the beach, and mm-hmm. it was, so dogs and the the rugged coastline and the clouds and oh my goodness, like right there, oh, we're like, what is this place? Yeah. And then the sights just got better from there. We drove up through Kennebunk and Kennebunk Port. Uh, the houses. Wow, wow, wow. There was this house, there was two houses where their yard was more boulder than grass. But not and in a bad way. So like, good. That's well, very Arizona type. Thing. So, like, yeah. I mean, the front side of their house was facing the road, which was where these big boulders were. Sitting on top of a, not, not a bunch of boulders, a boulder. A big boulder. You know. And then the back side of their house was on the coastline. Okay. Like, That's they cool. were literally beach view. That's cool. So, 
you know, it. How much would you say that that house goes for? Oh, we two and a half million. We had <laughs> we did some window shopping. Like we well, so though that house, yeah, probably two and a half million, four million, something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, uh, we were looking at like ten to fifteen million dollar houses on Zillow and in, in Bar, like Harbor, Bar Harbor and yeah. Stowe, Vermont, and various places. I mean, these places come with floating docks for your yachts and yeah. and stables for your horses and multiple acres of property and on the on the coast on yeah fucking capitalism excess bullshit yeah they have like two additional homes for you know guest house in-laws suite and and ground pool it was at this moment that he knew he fucked up (laughs) yeah so there were multiple times actually that i think that i said why did I choose the career path that I did? <laughs> Stupid me. <laughs> yeah. So we we did the sightseeing up wow. the coast. It was a great way to spend that Saturday. Sa- it was Saturday, Saturday morning. morning. Saturday yeah. morning because nothing mm-hmm. would be open. And we got to Portland right when the brewery started to open up. And, well, uh, first, we spent- the coffee shop coffee shop. Didn't we hit the coffee shop? Wasn't that where we hit the coffee shop? No. Yeah, it was. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Narrative. Narrative. Remember. Yeah. Yeah. Coffee shop. I have no idea what coffee we, shop. We hit the coffee shop to get like coffee. three days later. No. What? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Uh-oh. Retard alert. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway so we stopped at this place called twin light and this place was super cool so it's weird in maine all the state parks all you have to pay to get into uh-huh. and if you just like bip bopping across it's like it doesn't make sense to pay like 16 dollars oh, to park oh, wait but there's more to that i'm sorry to interrupt you don't forget if you're f- from that state Okay, it's $12 it was like instead of $16. $12 for parking. It didn't matter if it was five minutes or two hours or 24 hours. Um, so did you buy a pass or And somewhere? if you were from out of state, you had to pay $16. There must have been like for a pass. five minutes or 25 No. No? No. There might have there might have been like a residence pass or something, um, but it's like we just want to bop in and take a picture. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you know I'm not going to pay eight dollars per person. Yeah, to bop in and take a picture. Um, but we did find one place called Twin Light just south of Portland. Um, it, this day it was so foggy. And it was weird. How like, foggy was it? Well, it, well, well you here, couldn't listen. see your hand in front of your face. It wasn't. There it is. It wasn't foggy in the morning. It got foggy in the afternoon. And so we were super confused. We thought that like it was Canadian wildfire smoke blowing in. Because yeah. it doesn't get foggy late yeah. afternoon not or, here or in pittsburgh morning, you right, know right, like yeah. fog doesn't occur like between 11 and 3 right fog is is first thing is things morning. get cool so the water so the cool air can hold less precipitation stuff comes up from the ground 
So you get this haziness because the cold air can hold less water, but it's 100% humidity. Uh, and so you get, um, and that's fog, basically. That's uh, So it saturated. got foggy. We were like, oh, my God, the smoke is horrible around here. But it turned out it was just fog. Smoke wasn't bad. Um, we got the twin light. Twi- the shore at twin light was amazing. We spent like an hour and 20 minutes just is taking that photographs. where all the dogs were and no. that beautiful house? No, that was York. That was York. We already yeah. talked about that. <laughs> you guys have having this weird side it's, thing. Yeah, it's not I'm working. I'm sorry. I checked out for a minute. I was focusing on something else. No, I'm trying to talk about where the rocks look like petrified wood. Oh. So the, the shoreline was Amazing. all rock. And it was glacial grooves, right? So the glacier is, and so it had all this like, but it looked like petrified wood, not just the grooves going down it, but it had breaks in it. You know, it looked like it was mm-hmm. chopped up lumber. Yeah. And there was tidal pools with little crabs in it. And there was, the fog was super thick. And we just took a bazillion photos of that thing. This one has the sabro hops in it, so look for coconut flavor. You need to explain what you're talking this about. This is Squirrel Hill South from East End Brewing here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, um, yeah that, that that is very interesting. So I'm wondering where that sweetness was. You say it's from the hops, sabro, like the co- like the toasted yeah. coconut, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we spent so, like it was just this like short little like area, but it was super fo- it was so foggy. How foggy? No, it was so foggy that we were 50 yards from other people couldn't see them, mm. like on the shore, you know? And so we're just like, just taking photos. Like I was trying to get photos of waves splashing up over rocks and then kind of draining down and stuff. I'll show you some later. But so we did that. And then we're, that was just outside of Portland. So then, wow. yeah, nice, huh? Petrified. Oh, yeah. What? Picture of a thousand words right there. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Have you ever got, I, I went to the Petrified Forest in Arizona, and it was really cool. Yeah, this isn't wood. Yeah, this but is wood. But it's not yeah, wood. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it, rock. It, yeah. It just looks just it has like that, Petrified It has that, wood. like, texture and the, uh, the, like, discontinuities that you would expect. Uh, and, yeah, that's really cool. And that's glacial melt. It's the the striations from the glacier running across it, I think, is what gave it the grooves. I didn't read it. I intuited it. That was in Cape Elizabeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, we went to Portland. We were up for a long time. We stopped at a couple of breweries. I think we went back to the Airbnb. Yeah. Uh, the next day was the tour at Allagash. It was a rainy day, so we did the tour at Allagash. Bought a ton of beer from Allagash, which you'll be drinking. And... Um, <laughs> there's there's four breweries in the same industrial park as Allagash. I mean, including Allagash, there's three others. Or was there four others? There was four others. One was closed that day. Oh, yeah. And um, none of them held a candle to Allagash. There was a Taste of Maine food truck there, which had a $40 lobster roll. $40! And it was highly recommended. Mm, But we didn't find out... don't think the guy that told us about that one it was like two days after we already had it no no yeah it was a person at the other brewery told us to go back and get it but we had already had it lobster roll is done in five minutes it was good 
We had forty dollars for five. 40, they were all that yeah. price. Like all, they were all truck. around forty bucks. But this was a food truck. Yeah, we so, had yeah. we had That's one ridiculous. at uh, a nice French re- a restaurant called Duck Fat. We had yeah. one in um, up near Arcadia. Um, I can't think of the name of the town right now, but it was at a brew pub. That one was pretty good. We had the one that was right when we were sitting outside, um, yeah. in right on the pier. Um, yeah, yeah, and then you had one at that oyster place, right? Where I got the oysters. Yeah, yeah. That was the four. Uh, I mean, they were good, but after four of the lobster rolls, we really weren't like jonesing for more. Mm-hmm. Um, in, so Bar Harbor is the town closest to Acadia National Park, and Acadia. We we stayed in a town called Ellsworth, about thirty minutes. forty minutes, thirty forty minutes from Acadia. Bar Harbor is a lot closer, but lodging is way expensive there. And it's Cru- a tourist. Cru- it's like Disney. It's, well, all the cruise ships go there. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's Bourbon Street. Very you know, tourist. like it's mm. kind of cruise ships park there. You know, it's a lot like the French Quarter of New Orleans, but smaller. But still, it's that kind of vibe, right? All the shops are there for tourists. That's not um, where we wanted to be. So. Lodging was too expensive. So we found an Airbnb 30 minutes from there on the other side of like the one road in, you know, so it was like the the hub at the other side of like the main thoroughfare. And, uh, but when we were in Bar Harbor, we, Bar Harbor is so, so there's Bar Island and it's where the name of Bar Harbor comes from. There's an island in the mainland and during low tide, it drains down low enough that there is a walkable land bridge to the island. And if you, you have about three hours, an hour and a half on each side of low tide, you can walk it. And if you're, you miss it, you got to wait screwed. nine hours for low tide again. Or you can call the boat taxi. The water taxi for $150. Yeah. And you'll wait at least an hour for them to get there to get you. You need an Uber. You need Uber of water taxis to disrupt that market. It, it, it's like insult to injury. It's like, yeah, it's going to be all the money. And guess what? We don't give a fuck. We'll get there when we get there. And hope you have mosquito repellent. <laughs> so walking across that was really cool. And then we when we got back across that, um, I had used Open Table to book in Acadia National Park. There is the Jordan Pond House, which is this historical restaurant thingy-majig. That's where we went for her birthday. And you surprised me. What did you have amazing. for your birthday? You had a really good dish. You had oh, oh chicken piccata. Yes. I ordered a pork chop and I was overdone. Mm. It's interesting. He always orders the beers. We both order beer, but he orders the one that I ultimately am like, oh, yours is better than mine. We trade. And then when it comes to food, it's the opposite. Mm. I order, I typically, this isn't always, but typically I I order the the better of the day. It's weird. I don't know why I was like, I normally. There's few times when I would choose a pork chop. I normally don't like pork chops, but I just, I don't know. I just had a feeling like if I'm going to ever like a pork chop, this is the time I'm going to like a pork chop. And uh, I get it. You occasionally just look for something like, hey, why not? Go for it. So we had that and we used Open Table. So like then Open Table is sending me messages. Uh, And they're like, we got this um, Brasserie de Brune or something like that. Um, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. It's French, Belgian type place or whatever. 
and I look at the reservations and every time slot is available. And I'm like, well, it still looks good. They have oysters, they have French fare. Like, you want to eat there? She's like, yeah. So I'm about, I'm about to. This wasn't on my birthday. This is like the following day. Yeah. Another, another dinner. But I'm like, I'm about to book it and open table is like, well, there's a $60 fee if you cancel or don't show. Wow. Meanwhile, every slot was open. So when every slot was open and like, there's this big fee, I'm like, okay, why don't we walk past it before we commit to this thing? So we low tide happened. We walked to Bar Island. It was about three blocks from that land bridge. So we walked to the place. Place was delightful. They had been open for ten days. Wow! Wow! Yeah. So that explains the open table mm-hmm. predicament. We had so much fun there. The bar. We sat at the bar. The bartender was amazing. Awesome. He was so fun. We had. It was the a two. It was a two hundred dollar dinner, mm-hmm. you know, at two fifty with the Plus, tip yeah. kind of thing, you know. And uh, I've done that for one. If you do omakase, if you decide to go to a sushi restaurant, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you get like a good one, uh, the one in I had one in Seattle, one in San Francisco. They were about that price, and they were, and that was ten years ago, uh, or, or mm, six or seven years ago. Uh, but they were uh, awesome meals. Yeah. So that was my favorite meal since I ordered the bum. Yeah. Uh, pork chop. Which meal did you like better? You can think about it. I'll oh. talk about it. So I had, we. I started with a dozen oysters. I was like six or a dozen. She's like, I might want one or two. Well, if you were taking two of them, then I need a dozen, you know. And they were delicious. She had a French onion soup that was made with um, veal broth or something like that. And $18 French onion soup. It was amazing. <laughs> And I'm really particular about my French onion soup. And then my it main was dish was fantastic monkfish curried thing on chickpeas. So fucking good. I bet. So <laughs> what did you get? I forget. What you, did you get a prime rib or, or filet mignon or something? No, it was um, wine. It was like beef and wine, right? Yeah, it was. Oh, jeez. So how far are you in on your trip? That was yes. a weekend. <laughs> Just the first weekend? Like no, the a weekend. Like six, so a weekend. Like okay. five six, seven or days. Six As days how long was, was your trip in total? 17 days. You had a long trip. Yeah. It, so I'm going to bust in and put in my trip now yeah. just to, yeah. to, to cut for up. Sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So, because I only was there for a week. Uh, and my, my thinking going in was I knew this was going to be a cooking thing for me. I first brought, of all, I have to ask. Wait. Did you... Go alone? Who did you go with? So my parents, every year since, except for the one one pandemic year for the past, I don't know, eight years, have bought a have, have rented a house in Cape Cod. Okay. And uh, I've been invited every time. I think this is the fifth time I went. All right. So it's sort of a yearly thing. Uh, and so my parents are there and uh, my sister, my brother-in-law, my niece and my nephew. Okay. So that's that's generally who's there, although my niece uh, is so busy that she was rarely there for, for most of it. Well, but, well, how old is she? Oh, she's uh, she's 19. She's yeah. the first year in, yeah, in, in college. Yeah, she is. Busy uh, on social media. Very, 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 very. Uh, she has all her Boston friends, and yeah, she's always out with them. So I barely talk to her, but um, 
that's neither here nor there. I mean, whatever. She's 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 living her life. Yeah. Go for it. I mean, that's the it, it's, it's hardly a trouble for them because they live in Boston anyway. Yeah. So going to the Cape is yeah, it's an hour. Yeah. Um, I the the last time I was there was two years ago, and I like I remember shipping some things because it was too expensive because I was like I'm going to cook a lot. And also buying some stuff at the Asian store enough that there was stuff to pull back. So I like I shipped my knives. I also I, I I shipped. I wanted to while I was there last time learn how to knife sharpen. So I had stones and I didn't want to pack them in my bags. That's just one of the reasons why I shipped because they were like twenty pounds alone. Um, it didn't didn't stick. I still have them, but uh, the, the mechanical sharpeners are a lot easier to use. <laughs> but anyway, they, they wear your knives faster. But if you have good knives. Yeah, so I did. I did pack my good knives. Decades. I did pack my good knives because my point, my my whole goal I'm here was. I'm guessing you didn't put them in your uh, baggage that you were taking. Not no, um, I, it was checked. It was checked bags, and, and you know, <laughs> if you've ever seen those cooking shows where where chefs put on a knives, they have a roll. I have a knife roll too. Uh-huh. So uh, so yeah, you can so you can pack good knives in, in in a in a place where it's not going to either hurt anybody nor arise suspicion right. because people are like, okay, yeah, he's it's a knife roll. I understand what that is. Um but anyway, my goal was to just enjoy the seafood that's there and make some good shit. Mm-hmm. That was my entire like plan. Uh and I didn't care about the beach or anything else. Um I think I wanted to see Oppenheimer too. And I did and we could talk about that later. Uh the the dishes that I made were all based on seafood. The only thing was going in, I th- I had this thing in my head, which was I want to grill some lobster. I want to grill some lobster. I had this dish in my head where it would be the grilled lobster tail over some kind of – it wasn't clear exactly what it was. I think it was more like – it was either a puree or something. There was something that was on Like that. a parsnip thing or well, – Yeah, like it would parsnip celery root. Puree. Yeah, sounds good. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. Yeah. Uh never got never That's did some that. Garlic butter. But because but but I did eventually do things with lobsters, which which kind of capped the whole week off, which was good. But so the the first thing that we bought were um I went to the to store, we got mussels, some oysters, bluefish, and uh striped bass. Now, the, when you say the store, the, was it... This is the Wellfleet Fish Market. So, uh, I don't know what that is. Yeah, but it's... It, just a, it's a, is it a chain place? No, or is it, no, no, no. This no, no. is a local... This is a local store. A family-owned, yes. whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, yeah. that, that Actually, was Actually, went to question. a different fish market and said, no, okay. the Wellfleet Fish Market's better. And so we went to that one. Right. Uh, and that's where, yeah, there was just some absolutely wonderful stuff out there. And They caught everything themselves and brought it into the I don't store. know whether they caught everything themselves, well, but there are, there are a place where you can go and get, like, ridiculously yeah. fresh fish. Up there, right? Most of the fish comes from a small fisherman, yeah. Yeah. right? But yeah. they just kind of go through a broker. Mm-hmm. And this is almost certainly... a is less brokerish, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, and scallops. I forgot scallops. Mm. Uh, so that first scallops. night, I I told my parents, make sure there's some white wine. Just something drinkable that, that you wouldn't necessarily, like, 
put out on the table. Like you'd be okay with putting out on the table. Something. What to- would you consider a light wine? I just want something to cook with. Uh, and the idea tell is me, a cooking. Tell me what it is. Just a, I, I don't know. A, a, if you went into the state store, Pinot Grigio. Okay, that's probably be the first thing I would I would look for because I want something that's bright and fruity. Uh, I don't want a lot of oaky notes. Mm-hmm. I want that brightness and the fruitness. That's what I want to cook. Okay. Um, so you know, get something that has a screw top because I'm going to be using this for cooking. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I don't know how much wine you buy. You know, nowadays, not, I, not but some of your finer wines are actually screw tops. They should be. I think yeah. that the the whole cork thing, like it's like the bottles and beer, right? It's like the cans are the way to go. Don't like for for beer. Mm-hmm. For wine, screw tops are the way to go. Like that, you can portion your beer. Find that the cork doesn't really add anything. It's just a, a aesthetic thing. We were watching some wine. YouTube, and the stat surprised me. You know, corked wine is where it gets the infection from the fungus in the mm-hmm. one in twelve bottles. Wow, one in twelve with natural corks. One in twelve bottles are corked. So a lot of you see a lot of the synthetic corks now, yeah. but I don't know how it affects that. But I imagine it that number. I would have thought one in a hundred bottles. Yeah. yeah, you know, something like that. Not one in twelve bottles. I mean, one, you figure that one out of every case one is One out of every case, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, and it feels like just changing the screw tops and you, you lose that problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so the first night, I'm just thinking about the meals that I made because I tried to remember everything. But the first night was mussels, especially because my mother really wanted to, to do the mussels. And so I I was like, okay, what the hell can I do with mussels? And they had a panne pasta. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do a mussel pasta. Uh, and, um, that was really, really good. Cause it's really simple. It's just sort of, you steam the muscles real quick mm-hmm. and I kind of nailed it. I have to say, because it was, it's a matter of getting it within like, give them three minutes, maybe four do it like in a wine butter shallot sauce or something like that. Well, or- Yes, yes, I made, yeah, it's a, you, you cook some shallots and, uh, and uh, garlic with butter, and then you pour the wine to uh, to get that, and then that's mm-hmm. when you put the, the the mussels in, get that boiling, and yeah, four minutes at most, because uh, they're all going to open up, all those mussels. Uh, oh, clean them first, that's an important thing, you know, like, maybe when I'm getting mussels uh, from the supermarket, it's not something that I did, but I, I took the time to clean and de-beard every single mussel. Uh, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of people eating, and it's like because I'm trying to make this special. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was really good because the muscles were like n- I nailed it where they were cooked, but they were definitely not overcooked, which is hard to do. Yeah. Um, but I think the fresh muscles helped. The fresher they are, the easier, the the, the more room you have to make a little bit of a mistake. So I had I had room. Um. I mean, for people listening, you know this. I'm not. I, I want to kind of provide color, like shrimp. Like it's so easy to overcook. So shrimp. easy. And if you do shrimp just right, it is like ten times better than you think shrimp. Shrimp. Yes, for sure. All right. So the next night was try. It's so hard to remember all the dishes because. I made some some ones, but like okay, I believe that the next night was the night where I, I I spent the most time sort of crafting something. 
because that was a night where I had the, it was the striped bass that I was using. And I was like, okay, I only have, I only have like a pound, maybe a pound and a quarter of striped bass. Uh, and this is the night that it helped that I went Asian. Because what I did is I actually bought some sake so I could make this um, marinade that I learned uh, Morimoto made at, no at Nobu. And it's basically mirin, sake, and sugar. And um, yeah. uh, what's mirin? Mirin is a uh, Japanese cooking wine. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like fermented, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean like, it's, like, it's a rice like, wine, but like, it, 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 it's just sweet. It's, it's more sweet than... Okay, so I mean, think of a sweet rice wine, it, but it's not quite sake. I mean, yeah. So, like, help me out there. Like, if it's not sake, it's a, it's, it's it's almost always using cooking, so it's it's more on that level because I I don't really know if I've ever like just I, I think of it as a cooking ingredient, not as a okay, uh, as a drinking thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know really what it tastes. Is like it a, okay? So sake isn't. 100% isn't fermented with saccharomyces, right? It's fermented with a fungal thing, right? Right. Is mirin fermented with yeast or? I don't know. Oh. I have, I don't know. But I mean, sake is, 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 is rented with saccharomyces, but it has the fungus as yeah. well. I'm just wondering if it's more of a less, of, less, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but, you know, curious if it is just a beer, a rice beer. Yeah, I mean, Versus... it'd be it'd be cool to look up, but I'm more interested in telling yeah. the story. Okay, uh, so that so I marinated the that of like for a bunch of hours, and I realized that was not going to be enough because again, I only had a pound and a half. And I was like, okay, I could do these scallops, but the scallop, but I also needed I needed some starch because with the with the mussels, I had the pasta. Mm -hmm. But what do I add for the starch? So I was like, okay, well, I'll just I'll grab some potatoes and make a mashed potato. So I made uh, a mashed um, potato, half new potatoes, half yellow, really small ones that boil and cut them apart. They boil quickly, and used got some uh, Parm Reggiano, always important, always good to have, and uh, roasted some garlic. Mashed that all together. With a little bit of cream, uh, and uh, it was pretty good. That and and the the meat, which I did under the oven, like uh, did the oven five minutes and then three minutes under the broiler for the bottom, and I didn't get the skin crusty, which sucked because it would have been a lot better if I had. Yeah, but then the scallops were on top of like a a. a, a Kind of like, I, I would call it more of a granulade, which it's sort of like a pesto without pine nuts. Um, it had just a bunch of, I like cilantro and parsley and uh, basil and a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of lime juice, parmesan, salt. And that was underneath these, everybody got two big scallops. And so I sort of made this like little paste of that and then put the scallops on top. That was the, the most like composed dish. So there's a, a lump of of the the uh potato and the 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 little slice of fish that was marinated was on that, and then the two scallops on a on okay. the thing of the gremolot. Yeah, I mean, I was following along, I was imagining more of like fingerling potatoes still in like 
quarters or something. No, this was just mash, but it was it was a home style mash, so it had the skin still on. Okay. Uh, and then the next night, the next day, I think actually, I I, I bought what this place that had oysters, but it was like, you know, they were bringing in the oysters as I was buying them. So it was super fucking fresh. Yeah. So I made, uh, I, I just, I, I got, you know, 50 of them and I was like, pop it was, they were so easy to pop open too. Oh my God. They were so, so easy. Uh, it was the easiest time I ever had breaking oysters. Up. That was a weird thing in Maine. I had a hard time. I wanted to find a place a giant eagle or something where I could buy some oysters and there was nothing there. I found, we found one place, but they were like sold out because we went in the afternoon. Uh, like it was weird how there's almost like a cartel. Like the oysters are yeah. reserved for the restaurant. Yeah. That, I mean, you know, that's what you get when you go into those weird areas. Yeah. Um, so that I, I mostly had those raw, but that then I did grill some up for my for my mother, and it was good that I tried. I, I went on the grill, and the grill lasted for five minutes, and then they ran out of fuel, so I had to had to do them under the uh, the broiler. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I basically because she, she doesn't like raw, so what I did was I just did I grilled them up till they popped open, and uh, popped them up in there and, and put some. It was just Parmesan cheese and breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's kind of like a mini Rockefeller, but I, re- I knew it was going to be good. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. Cool. Um, and then the last night I finally got around to the lobsters. Oh, oh, oh before that I did bluefish and I did southern style uh, frying. So we fried them in uh, like cornmeal and flour. Nice. Pretty. It, it, it worked way better than I expected. But so the last night was the lobster night, and I was like, okay, I'm, this grill thing is not going to work. Also, there was some talk about not, you know, people not loving a huge chunk of lobster and stuff like that. What? So it's like, so I, I have a family who doesn't necessarily love a huge chunk of lobster. They like lobster, but the they had, I guess, not necessarily great experiences going out and getting like lobster meals. I so I said, okay. Lobster. Okay, I want to do lobster, but I'm going to do it now in a different way. I'm going to make two different dishes from some lobsters. I'm going to make a bisque. Never made a bisque. Let's do that. And I know I can make a good lobster mac. So let me do that. There you go. So uh, I got three lobsters, pound and a half, I think they were each, uh, 68 bucks. And you made lobster mac. I made lobster. So what, what I did is I <laughs> I parboiled. Or I, well, I let me say for the, the I I I tried to handle these lobsters in the chefiest way possible, <laughs> but also in in the way that I think was probably the uh, most um, humane way possible, which is I killed them first before I did any of the other stuff. I took my knife and cut them and in crossed the head severing their brains before I did any cooking whatsoever. And then I kind of tore them apart. So <laughs> I would tear off the the tail, uh, tore off the claws, and kind of tore out uh, the, the, the liver, the, the, the green stuff. Two of the lobsters were girls that had eggs. Ew. 
Did you see you anything at the row? You bet, you bet your ass I did. <laughs> there was lobster roe, unfertilized. So, I mean, because they were, you're not allowed to, 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 to sell lobsters with fertilized eggs, and they'd be on the outside. Um, but you don't know that, you know, if, if, if a girl lobster has, uh, has eggs inside of her. And two of them did. And this, this is, I remember get, getting them once and being really happy. This was two, and they were, you know, I was able to get the eggs before they were cooked. Uh, it's just weird because it's a really dark green and they turn a, a bright red when they're cooked. It's really, really interesting. But yeah, so I was able to, to pull out uh, a lot of eggs from these. I was like, okay, I'm going to use these. I don't quite know how, but I'm going to use these. And really just did a very quick, like four or five minute steam with the lobsters, took them out when they were par cooked. Got the meat out and took the shells in order to start making a stock and sort of let that cook with just that shells and water. And I would toss in a few aromatics, just a couple like things of the end of onions uh, in the middle of it. Let's that cook for about five hours to get just a lobster stock. And that was going to be the base of, of my bisque. And the bisque was real easy, real easy, because I made sure that I brought for my sister the immersion blender. That's kind of the key. Mm -hmm. But so I cut up all the lot. I had all, all this lobster meat that I had and sort of cut it up. And it was, I had to make sure I put a label on there saying, do not eat. So that my parents wouldn't go in. And, and my, like my father has this kind of, he's not a very humorous guy, but when he does think he has a sense of humor, he, it, it's a very kind of Bugs Bunny, ain't I a stinker kind of bullshit. And it's like, ha-ha, I'm going to take a little chunk of that. Ha-ha, I'm going to take a little chunk of that. And so I like, had to be very, very specific. And then, of course, while I was cutting them, my dad came around and went and I pretended. And I just didn't acknowledge it because I was just like, yeah. stop it. Stop. <laughs> Doing something here. Plus, it's, it's part cooked. I mean, it's not fully cooked. Don't, don't fuck around. Anyway, that's a little personal note. Um, <laughs> as the lobster stock was cooking, I should mention, I took some butter and took uh, three of the leg shells and put that in there and made sort of a compound butter with the lobster legs just to give me a base for both of the dishes, right? So I, I made the lobster mac was just some some um, campanelli, I think it was. I made sure I get to make sure, always make sure to get the, the pasta that has the bronze cut. Especially if you want to get stuff to stick to it. And then it was like a grillé and, and a cheddar that was in, in the fish. I made bechamel, you know, real simple. But that's where I put the roe. Okay. Because I realized that as I was tasting it, it didn't have enough lobster-ishness. The lobster bisque, of course, was, you know, basically just stock and a mirepoix uh, and uh, and just like a little bit of, of wine. Uh, and that was just sort of blended together. And then you add a little bit of cream and it was great. But that, that lobster Mac needed that extra lobster and that row is perfect. Oh man. Mm -hmm. Just and, 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 and making the bechamel was totally the right call because it had the right creaminess without being over creamy. Uh, so yeah, I was really, really happy with how the lobster turned down. And so that was, that was my culinary adventure. In <laughs> when we were staying at Acadia in Ellsworth, there was a brewery right near our house 
called Airline. And, and it was their tap room, but it, they had purchased an old English-style pub. So this place had four beers on cask. Their oatmeal stout. Oh, my Crazy. God. Crazy. The, the bitter, very good. But the oatmeal stout, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the beers I'm telling the story. The first day we went, we ordered a cup of a clam chowder. Mm-hmm. And the lobster bisque. Did we? Okay. I ordered the okay. lobster bisque and you ordered the clam chowder. The clam chowder was insane, Greg. It was freshly made. The celery still had a crisp to it. The potatoes still had had structure to them. It was the celery flavor was like bold and potent in this thing. It was so good. We ordered the we ordered the clam chowder three times while we were there. We've had three. We had three bowls of clam chowder each. Three visits. Three. I went to a place with my friend in in Connecticut that had this. It was famous for its pizza, but it's clam pizza. And he said, you know, I, I had it once, uh, and it, you know, it was okay. But he, you know, got it and then went home and and took it. It's like an hour drive. So we actually went up there and had it fresh out of the oven. Oh my! Yeah. One of the most delicious things I've ever eaten. Mm-hmm. Like, it, if you get that fresh and you have that right there when it's out of the oven, it is just remarkably delicious. Yeah. We think clam pizza, no, they, they fucking nailed it. it you know, it, it, what is it? It's bread and, 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 and buttery garlic sauce and, and yeah. clams. I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> fresh. It's all about the butter. It's going to be just like delicious. And it was. And it was. Oh, Wow. I still remember being like, this is just fantastic. And, you know, we, I think we, we, we had like two slices or three that we brought home and, uh, you know, microwave later or something or, or put in the <laughs> oven. And it was like, you know, you, you get like the essence of what you had, yeah. but you don't get the, the experience. Yeah. yeah that, that clam chowder was insane. The, that dinner we had at that French brasserie was crazy mm-hmm. good. And the dinner we had at the lake house for my your chicken was crazy good. It was chicken piccata is an interesting dish because my mother used to make it all the time, Uh, and I'm sure she didn't make it as good as a restaurant did. But you know, she'd she'd pound chicken and Mm -hmm. flour it, fry it up some capers. I uh, I I I did a thing last night, kind of just feeling things out. So I did flattened chicken. In a egg wash and panko, and cook that up. And I did my Brussels sprouts that you've had before. Mm-hmm. So I did those, and then I took some mushrooms. Gar- well, I did garlic and added mushrooms. I added some sour cream and some red wine. I was going for like a masala thing, but but the red wine kind of changed it quite a mm. bit. And um, so I had this mushroom wine sauce put on top of the panko flattened chicken. Mm-hmm. It was really good. <laughs> it turned out pretty good. <laughs> the sauce, when it cooled, thickened up too much. So it wasn't really creamy sauce yeah. on the plate. So that was the big problem. That's, I mean, uh, that was that, the- that's something you have to worry about sometimes. So, so the, the, um, the bisque that I made was real, like it's a real simple, there was a mirepoix and then. I forgot to get tomato paste. My mother had bought some like tomato, like emerald tomato sauce. So what I did was beforehand, I 
reduce that down a lot and sort of caramelize it. And that's basically tomato paste, right? So, um, so yeah, once, once the mirepoix was like getting close to sauteed, slightly brown, but not, not burning, that's when you got to be real careful. And I was like following a basic, none of these were recipes. All these were like, I looked at recipes as sort of guidelines, but not as how I'm going to make it, but was also like curious about the bisque part, like getting, like getting that right. And there were a bunch of different ones. There's one that involved like rice. Apparently that mm-hmm. is used a lot to thicken, but I just went with a more simple version, which was, yeah, the tomato paste and it, it almost burns You add the flour and it almost burns. And you add the wine. Uh, and, then that reduces and then you put in your stock, let that go for like 30 minutes. And then you, um, you blend it up and add the cream and the meat. Uh, and that really worked. It worked really well. It wasn't the most, uh, thick bisque you've ever had, but I think it worked well. I'm going to go grab our scripts from the future. Oh, good, oh, good idea. Okay, uh, the the Mac was where I I off script because one of the things that I bought was I I told my parents and my sister there are three things, four things that every pantry should have. They should have, and there are four fermented things. Every pantry should have fish uh-huh. sauce, mm-hmm. gochujang, the Korean paste, mm-hmm. miso. Okay. Worcester. I think having all having f- those four gives you so many options, so many ways to enhance dishes. Uh, and they're all fermented things, right? They're all sort of fermenty flavors that add something without being like ridiculously complicated. Yeah, I think you can make it. Yeah. Maybe. You're good. You're good. Okay. Jeff is bringing out the script here. So <sighs> I, I use gochujang in, in the um, in the mac and cheese. And it really, that and the cheese, like the gochujang and the cheese, mm, so good. I totally recommend gochujang and anything cheesy. You've had Shannon's mac and cheese, right? Uh, I believe I have, yes. And it was really she, yeah, she makes a delicious mac and cheese. It's interesting though; she, her her recipe is a secret, so I'm not going to spoil it. But it's it's '60s '70s style cooking, right? So like, it's not there's no clarified butter, there's no no fancy things, but it's still a fucking delicious. It's, there there are certain things that if you try to change it at all, really. Then it definitely changes the f- flavor completely. Because my mac and cheese was shockingly simple. It was start with some of that butter that, that I made, the, the, the butter with the lobster, uh, put in uh, some, some finely chopped shallot and gochujang. Get that cooking, then put in some flour. Get that cooking, it starts to brown up. That's when I put on the milk and a little bit of cream. And I. Uh, you know, use that to deglaze the pan mm-hmm. uh, and flour. It, 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 the milk of the flour turns into bechamel. And then you throw in your your mac, and I put a little bit of the um, 
mac water that was left with it to get to get the because if you use your mac and cheese water if you use your, your macaroni water you're going to get some starchy stuff in there it's going to help you thicken that stuff out mm-hmm. throw the cheese on mix that up with the lobster meat and and then cut the row in there so like it was really simple yeah but it was just a matter of you know getting those ingredients in there at the right time in the right place well I obtained this recipe, which I've kind of changed up a little bit over the years, but I got it from a friend in the early 90s, and she gave it to me. It was her grandmother's recipe, and nobody else had it. Her grandmother gave it to her, and... um she ended up giving it to me, and I made a promise to her that I would never give away to anybody else. And I haven't. I haven't done it. Um, at some point, one of my kids will inherit You'll have the to. Recipe. You have to give it off because that's, yeah. kind of, that's the kind of yeah. knowledge that is supposed to be passed on, but just not, like, broadcast. Right. right. <laughs> but uh, well, you haven't given it away. I, I can do a pretty good job making it. Oh. You don't even know what's in it. I know what's in it. You don't know what kind of attention I pay to things. Yeah, I do know. Hmm? Yeah, I do know. You can you could tell me what I wore last Thursday. So she hasn't told anyone other than her favorite spouse. <laughs> <laughs> there My were, only. There were a couple of things that we put in, in, in our notes yourself. that I do want to talk about, but we can get to we can do this first. We can do this first because I'm gonna pass out here soon. So okay. So this is the AI written yes. bullshit. So I I I told uh Bing Chat to write an episode of Craft Beer Radio. And we're gonna perform it as written with a little bit of ad libbing. Uh we need some intro music though. Wait. The names, though. The you're names the, are we, we we had names we picked last time. I forgot what they were. Made up names. You can be whoever you want to be. I know. I just need to know what to say in these parts. You just read the line. So I'm going to say name. Thanks, name. Just try to remember what, what was introduced and, and think of it. Think of it like an improv class. <laughs> <laughs> and you're trying to remember what was brought, and you say yes and. Shit. Just yes and. Yes and. So, my brewery name is the Brew Tank Clan. The Brew Tank Clan. All right. And I'm Jasper Hops. Jasper Hops, that's right. All right. Why do you build me up, build me up, oh, baby, just to let me down? Hello and welcome to Craft Beer Radio, the show for beer lovers. I want to learn more about the world of craft beer. I am your host, Schmegley, and today we have a special episode for you. We're going to talk about some of the latest news and trends in the craft beer industry, as well as review some of the beers we've been drinking lately. Joining me today is my co-host, Shmoomoo. Shmoomoo. And our guest, Jasper Hops. Schmigley Hops. <laughs> <laughs> who's a brewer at Wu-Tang. Brew-Tang Clan. Brew-Tang Clan. And I kind of got, got it mostly right. So what Me are you going to do? 
Well, you can, you can, can fight me. Welcome fight? We can welcome me to the show. Well, welcome to the show, guys. So, uh, thanks, Schmegly. Schmegly, yeah, that's my name. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's biblical. Schmegly. Yeah. Biblical? Yeah. It, it, it means from, uh, from what? It book? means fig tree. <laughs> Well, it's great to be here. Like bount, like bountiful fig tree. You know, you, okay. You know, schmegly. Schmegly. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to share some of our beers. Up, with we're talking. You. Awesome. Well, let's start with some of the headlines that caught our attention this week. <laughs> First up, you know, like I said at the beginning. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the latest news and trends in the craft beer industry. So I think what I want to point out is this news story <laughs> because we have some big news from South Korea where scientists have managed to sustain a nuclear fusion reaction running at temperatures in excess of 100 million degrees Celsius for 30 seconds for the first time. That's nearly seven times hotter than the core of the sun. What do you guys think of this amazing feat of science and brewery news? That is, it's incredible. I know. I wonder what kind of beer they're drinking to celebrate. Maybe something with a lot of hops to match the heat. (laughs) That's fabulous. <laughs> that was a good one. Oh, good one. Oh my god. <laughs> what was your name again? Match the heat. Match the heat, Jasper. Jasper. Holy fool. Holy shit. Oh my god. Oh god, well. Thank you. I have tears. I don't know. I can't so contain myself. Funny, how'd you think of that? I just read it on the script. Oh, <laughs> Can you imagine? Schmegley, can no. you imagine? Mm-mm. Are you Schmegley or my Schmegley? If you're Schmegley, she's Schmierish. Schmierish. Schmoosh-mush. Schmigish, schmigish, schmigish. Yeah, well, that's Danish. Um, <laughs> well, speaking of hops, <laughs> we have some news from the hop industry as well. Do we? Apparently. That, that's what my paper's telling me. Uh, according to a recent report by Hopstania. What? China. Okay. That's the original German. Uh, one of the leading hop suppliers in the world, uh, Hopsteiner. Uh, the global hop acreage has increased by 3.4% in 2023, reaching a total of, okay, you're never going to guess this number. You, you will never guess it in a million years. No, probably not. No, probably not. Well, we can't because we have the script in front of us. But I don't see so where you're reading. There's no guessing. Uh, <laughs> it, it, oh, she can guess. It's right there at the bottom. I mean, it's right here. Oh, but, that's where we are. But I, I don't think you, you'd possibly guess it. Couldn't guess it. But you give it a shot, just for the listeners. Maybe seventy-one thousand. Holy shit! You fucking nailed it. You nailed it. What? What does it matter? It doesn't really number. It doesn't What's really the matter. Unit? It's just 71,000. What's the unit? unit? It doesn't matter. Let me look at my scripts, man. <laughs> what is that? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, believe it or not, it's 71,000 hectares. Hectares. Yeah. What's well, a hectare? Fuck if I know. Hector. He's the guy in the wheelchair from Breaking Bad. Ding, ding, ding. Which he recently, ding. you know, RIP, by the way. Oh, yes. Uh, the report also shows this report about the 71,000 hectares and the increasing global do, hop do, acreage do, do. Uh, also shows that the U.S. remains the largest hop producer. No. Uh, yeah. 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 Of course. It's full of Germany and, and China. <laughs> That's right, Jasper. Um, it's not only you're funny, but you're full of information. It's great to have you on. Yes, thank you for you being know, those, on the show. Those Chinese hops really are dominating markets. <laughs> I find that very offensive. <laughs> I'm sorry oh, I insulted Donald Trump. Uh, the most you. popular hop varieties are Citra, Cascade, and Centennial. So, guys, <laughs> how do you feel about these numbers? Are you concerned like I am? I actually, I don't know. I think it's great that there is more demand for hops and more diversity in hop varieties. I'll tell you, yeah, Citra, Cascade, and Centennial. That screams diversity. diversity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading from the script. Don't judge. Right. No judging. I love trying new beers with different hop profiles and aromas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I, just, I agree. Centennial hops. Listen, list, listen. I, hops are such an important ingredient in craft beer. No, it's his turn. And they are really, and they can really make or break a beer. <laughs> Keep talking, isn't it? I we think use, the host is going to get fired. We use a lot of hops at Brutan Clan. Especially in our IPAs and pale ales. Great. It's your turn. I know. I know. Host just, for now. I'm sorry, just Jasper. Like I thought I got just you. Hate me. I no, thought I... I got you, and like you were hilarious, and then I think you're worried about your job right now. I don't want to talk about this right now, Schmoogie. I'm sorry. Lots of love. Lots of love. Thank you. That's how I love. Well, we're looking forward to tasting some of those later on, Jasper. But before we do that, let's talk about another trend that has been gaining popularity in the craft beer scene. Guys, let's talk about some hard seltzers. Oh some hard God. fucking seltzers. According to a recent survey by Nielsen IQ, what was that, Jasper? The hardest. The hardest. That's so hard. You know what? I like you now more. So. Yes, you know what? Scaring he, me. He's, he's winning me Stop over. Stop looking Shmangling at each other. Your seltzer fucking is the hardest over. fucking seltzer I've ever I'm scared. I mean, you should know, I leave? Maybe. But we need you, I think, for the rest of this, so that's that it's not going to help if you leave. Well, but I think we do need These starry eyes between the two of you. I well, don't know. Look, I, I can't be distracted by right now. We have a show to do. According to a recent survey by Nielsen IQ, hard seltzers accounted for 10% of the total alcohol sales in the U.S. by 2023. 10% up from 6% in 2022. Uh, up 6%. Four. Yeah. Four points. Four. Four percent. Damn. Survey also found that 
hard seltzers are more popular among younger drinkers, women, and uh, health-conscious consumers who are, I guess, not looking at the ingredients. What are your thoughts on hard seltzers? Do you drink them? Do Jasper, do you brew them? Why'd you ask him? You're supposed to ask me. You don't. Well, brew. I, I, I brew. suspect it. I mean, surely I don't think that you brew. So why don't you think I brew? You haven't told me about any brewing projects you have, so I didn't think you actually. Oh brewed. my god! I mean, like, yeah, I brew. Well, I remember that thing from like five years ago, but that was a that was a long time ago. I didn't think you actually brewed. Now, yeah, you've got stuff brewing right down there. Hard seltzers, yeast, yeast, just yeast, <laughs> <laughs> and bacteria. Oh, I mean, does that count as brewing, Jasper? What do you think? I mean, it's keeping a culture going. I yeah, mean, I'm sure she has to feed her culture and. Mm-hmm. I guess technically you, you, you got me. I mean, it's kind of like kombucha. Might. She might be making kombucha. Well, no, she, if, you're, if, just, you're explicitly just making. I'm no, like, you said come down up there. The you mean down in the basement, right? There. Yeah. Not, not <laughs> down there. <laughs> <laughs> you sick man, oh, Jeff oh Rivera. Oh, man, that thing about the heat was, I thought, the funniest joke. Something like <laughs> You keep going. Oh, yeah. Where were we? I have to admit, though, seriously. I mean, I really do enjoy hard seltzer. Mm. Once in a while. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Especially on a hot summer day. Okay. I mean, you know, the refreshing and kind of easy to drink. Yeah. I mean, well... Who can argue that? I don't drink them myself. But really, I respect that they have a place in the market. Patient we don't the brew show. them at Brutan Clan, but we have considered it as a way to reach new customers and diversify our portfolio. Wow. Interesting, because... Maybe some of your diversification can be accompanied by maybe not using just Citra Cascade and Centennial. <laughs> but hard seltzers is, I guess, another route that we have considered. Galaxy and Mosaic. Yeah. Too. No one uses those. It's super, it's super industry leading to use Mosaic. In Galaxy. Galaxy, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not a big fan of hard seltzers myself, but I can see why they appeal to some people, like Shmooley. Uh I prefer something <laughs> with more, you know, flavor and, and, and character, like Centennial Hops. I'm not where we are. <laughs> 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 like craft beer. Exactly. Oh my god! How did I know? Exa- I know. We're 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 connected. We're I know. Like, you know. Yeah. Group mind. Uh, speaking of craft beer, let's get to the main event of our show: the beer reviews. What? Yeah. Beer That's what reviews. everyone listens to us for. Dun, dun, dun. Today we have six beers from different breweries across the country that we're going to taste what? and rate on a scale of one to five stars. Seven. Never seven. We're also going to share some background information on each beer and brewery as well as our personal opinions and preferences. Are you ready? Absolutely. Let's do it. 
this song. Let's do it. No. And so this on. is the break Let, when there I would be beer reviews. A different song. Let's do it. <sighs> you missed the line, Greg. I did? All right, then. Let's I'll start with our first beer. It's gone. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm editing. I'm editing the. Uh... <laughs> oh my god, this is. I'm going to crawl out of my skin, man. Well, that wraps up our beer reviews for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to our opinions and insights on these beers, which... These beers. These beers. beers. (laughs) These beers. If you want to learn more about them or find out where you can buy them, check out our website at craftbeerradio.com, where we have lots of links to buying beer. Or to uh, our Discord. For links and details. (laughs) And don't forget to follow us on social media at at Craft Beer Radio on Twitter, Facebook. It's called X now. And Instagram for updates, photos, and more. But seriously, folks, Discord. Discord. Follow us on Discord. You can find the link on Craft Beer Radio. If you're ever in Schmalugalbogalville, come visit Wu Tang Clan. Never been there. And try some of our beers. We'd I've love to see you. Is I it in Maine? It's, no, I think it's New in, Hampshire. I, I, I heard it was in Montana. Wait, Montana? Montana? We're actually in the French Riviera. Oh, that's less interesting. Uh, thank you so much, Jess. Jasper Hops, Jasper Hops. They call me Jasper Hops because I brew with Jasper Hops. They call me Jasper. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And thank you. It was an honor. Can I have an autograph? Yep. Can I blow you? How about you let me sign your boob? Would I? You oh. were in my head. It's like we're connected in some way because I, love I was just going to ask you if you would autograph. When me. that's done, you want to blow each other? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for tuning in to Craft Beer Radio, the show for beer lovers who want to learn more about the world of craft beer. We'll be back next week with another. Episode full of news, reviews, and interviews. Whoa, interviews. <laughs> it's an alliteration. Until then, cheers. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so this is so funny that we did this corny ass thing. Literally, 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 yesterday. Remember? Um, what? Yesterday, what? Yesterday, mm-hmm. when I listened to that radio show, the beer, Vicini Distributing, right? You're familiar with them? Mm-hmm. Beer Distributor. Tony Nippling. Do you remember Tony? I don't know if you've met him much. But Probably. He was, a he was like one of the guys that brought craft beer to Pittsburgh back in the day. He passed away five years ago. So they had on KDKA radio last night on like AM talk radio. Mm-hmm. They had a show where they were commemorating Tony and having people remember Tony and Scott was on there and stuff like that. I listened to it and it's the first time I've listened to commercial radio in 10 years. (laughs) 
and oh, I'm sure that, yeah, the, commer- the, the commercials probably feel like these, right? This, yes, yeah, it was worse than this. Really? I mean, not worse than our silliness. Our silliness was probably not funny to a lot of people, but the straight part was better than that show. Mm, wow. I mean, I think that, you know, the important thing is, is seeing the, the, uh, the documentation so you can see what we went on, mm-hmm. right? And, and where, like, cause we, we hewed close to it when, like, for, for the most part, but we, in, we interjected a lot just to make it more fun for us, really. Uh, and to play. Yeah. Because, that's a that is a dry fucking script. Cooper's like, what do you mean? This guy's got this thing. Thing, in this a... thing is dry as hell. And then when it gets into the like the fusion shit, which has nothing to do with beer, the the, the global hop acreage, which who gives a shit? But it knows enough about what we've been doing recently to know that we would like we like science, which is kind of weird. I I just think that's just that just happened to to, to be. Oh, you news? don't think no. it knew that you were physics guy? Not at all. No, I think it just sort of. No. Remember, remember, AI doesn't make answers. It makes things that that are in the shape okay. of answers. Well, it's pretty coincidental. Based on based on what information. based on information it has, but it makes things in the shape of answers, and that's the important thing about AI. It's not that it makes answers; it makes things that are shaped like answers. So make sure that you consider that. And so this is shaped like something that someone might. Do like as a radio. We should monetize this. We get rich. Oh, AI. We should. We are the first to perform these these AI scripts and just like shit them out and put ads on them. We're the first ones to come up with that idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's just yeah. That's not what's been happening for years on YouTube and shit like that. I I know. Okay, talk, honey. We. We have lots more to talk about, but we only have, I mean, we don't, we, we, you already our, our accused me of making everything longer, so. <laughs> Cooper's, Cooper's like, is bouncing balls and he wants to play. Uh, so there are two things I want to talk about. One was what I put in Discord here, which is Murphy's Law as a design principle rather than as a cynical admonishment. Okay, what's the other thing? The other thing was LK99. Oh, well, what? Three what things. I still got a bitch about Justified, too. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm just trying to decide. We're not done yet. Yeah, no, because I wanted to talk about actually nuclear weapons. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, let's start with nuclear weapons, not Oppenheimer. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. Wake me up when you do. So I, I would say Oppenheimer, I, I put a little bit of a review in, in Discord, and <laughs> Oppenheimer was one of those movies that's uh, that's annoyingly good in the sense that Man, this could be so much better. Because all of the performances were great. I mean, really, everybody performed well. It was just three hours and felt it. And um, But even the part that's, like, I, I do think this framing device was kind of, like, uh, useless. I didn't see the need for it. But, man, there was a middle part there that was super captivating and just totally kept your attention. And you were just, like... And those, there were a couple moments where I, these are things that I'm going to remember, things that I've never seen cinema quite do as well and get across the feeling that, uh, yeah, that's like, it, it was, 
sort of getting the pure art of the moment, and that was something special. So I do think that there's something special about this movie. It's enough to to recommend it, enough to say that even though, yeah, it's it, it's kind of ponderous. It kind of overdoes it, and it's clumsy in some places. That there there are some parts that are going to dazzle the fuck out of you. And All right. That sounds like the opposite of Justified Sydney Primeval. Oh, really? So yeah. the see, I recommended to you last time, like you should watch the old episodes of Justified, mm-hmm. and that recommendation stands. Yeah, um, City Primeval is a six, six, seven, eight—I don't know—episode miniseries, kind of a short story of after Justified mm-hmm. by the, the main character, U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens, and like fifteen or eighteen years later. Yeah, yeah, about yeah. 15 years later. And it, it's been that long, right? It's been, yeah. yeah. It is fucking atrocious. It is the Welcome laz- to Star Trek Picard. It's the laziest writing. It feels it's like terrible. it is justified fan fiction written by a high schooler and then punched up by Hallmark, Hallmark. movie writers. You have the Picard experience. Something that you love destroyed by disgusting writing. And it's the exposition. And oh, it's just everything is a trope. It's like, oh, the hard ass cop guy is going to say the catchphrase, you know? And like, fan fiction written by a, a teenager is exactly how I would describe a car. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, a, a toy box somebody got to play with, with with the toys that they loved playing when they were a kid, and it makes as much sense as that. And uh, God, things that are brought up in the beginning are just forgotten about and, and just left on the table. <laughs> I, I, uh, when the, it so, there's only two more episodes. I'm going to see it through. Yeah. When I started watching it, I was like, "Is this like an absurdist comic book take on mm-mm. the thing?" And I'm like. Maybe it is. Maybe maybe that's Boy, that'd good. be nice, huh? If there was, like, some artistic merit behind it all? There's, uh, <laughs> there's sure not. I am sure there's not. There's not. But they fooled me for a couple episodes. Yeah, yeah no, like, I, well, think that, I think that's what... they didn't fool you. You just wanted to see... Uh, okay, but, maybe I was optimistic but, yeah. that it would be this absurdist comic book thing. You yeah. Know? No, no, I, you know, I think you, you, you hope for that. But, yeah, when you see that something has no artistic... Like, when something was made for extraordinarily shallow purposes when, when, when there was not a story that needed to be told, but rather somebody was like, I want to play with these toys. That is, mm-hmm. that's it. That is totally it. Yeah. The, the biggest thing that bugs me is the dialogue and the pacing <laughs> so is just bad. rushed. Right. It's like, I got to say the exposition mm-hmm. to make the thing make sense. Cut scene, you know, and, and it's so predictable. Yeah. Yeah. So you made a comment the other day that so she's never seen all of Justified. Work. We just finished season one. We watched these city primevals, kind of a time warp, and then we watched an episode of Justified. And you kind of felt that that peeled back the curtain, so, and the I'm, dialogue in the old stuff wasn't as good. Yeah, mm, I did. Again, that that's very similar to how I felt about Star Trek, right? Where Picard exposed all of the. The flaws of Star Trek that I had been sort of overlooking and and just not like and and it really exposed sort of the raw vein of bullshit that I was I was putting a pedestal up for Star Trek when it did not deserve it. Yeah, 
and it was a hard lesson to go through. But I'm glad I, I, mean, I brought it up. I don't. I I saw a glimpse of that in a certain mm-hmm. um, scene where there's a bunch of dialogue, and I'm like, this used to seem weighty, and now it seems flippant. You know? Yeah. I will say. All that being said, I am really enjoying this year's season of the newest Star Trek called Strange New Worlds, which I think should be called Star Trek Real Big Swings, because they're taking real big swings and they're trying. And when you see that kind of effort put into a show, even when it maybe doesn't work in certain places, you still admire it. You still are like, this is something worth watching, even when... Even when you don't connect, you know, hit a homer, you, the, those foul balls are so like, wow. <laughs> and uh, so I've been really appreciating that. And and especially in comparison to what was there when it was like, there was nothing that people were trying to do. It was just, I'm going to fuck around with some things. Ha ha, look at me. Look, look, look at these. You remember this? You remember this? You remember this? That's the the worst. So I want I want to get on New Murphy's Law, but I want to go back to the the shitty writers for these things. Uh-huh. I can't I can't understand an adult human who doesn't know they're putting out that schlock. Maybe maybe they don't care. Maybe they're just like that. It's a living, you know. Maybe that's it. I mean, I think that what what is true, and kind of what the strike is about, and what kind of in the end game of the WGA SAG stuff is going to be is, is a contraction is that there's too much. You, there aren't enough good writers for the amount of content that's being created. And there is too much money creating content where there weren't just, there weren't writers to, to do the, the stuff. And you can't just hire anybody, especially if you want to respect the, if you want something with artistic merit. And I just think that you had a good situation with Justified before, but you well, couldn't reproduce that. Yeah, when it ran the first time, it was kind of in that golden age. You know, like, it was a little earlier than Breaking Bad, but it was when cable TV was starting to, like, yeah. do shit, you know? No, I do. I get it. It was between The Wire and Breaking Bad, you know, so. Yeah. No, I, I think that it's... uh yeah, that it, it's that time of discovery where where you know Mad Men was happening. Where I don't, you know, I think like Mad Men is not a perfect show, but there are like there are parts that are brunt wonderful, and I think it's probably the same thing with Justified, right? I said wouldn't say you probably wouldn't say it's a perfect show, but there are parts that are wonderful. Yeah, um, it's not like The Wire where it kind of is the perfect show, and you kind of are mad at it because it's too perfect. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, uh, Murphy's Law is a design principle. Yeah, so Murphy's Law I always um, hated uh, because I, I didn't like the message. Murphy's Law, for those who are... How do you interpret it? Right, yeah. The, how I interpreted it was, okay, so Murphy's Law is, uh, if anything can go wrong, it will. And I interpreted that as, so just things are going to break and, and just nothing's going to work. You're, you're, you're doomed to failure always. Uh, it's very, I, I, I saw it as very cynical. I right? like if something is going to go wrong, it absolutely will. So don't even try. Um, and sort of recently I took on a different look at it. And, uh, that is that Murphy's law, perhaps because of my experience with stuff, Murphy's law isn't about that at all. Murphy's law is really about, uh, 
if you do something over and over again. It's really about repeated stuff. It's about understanding how something works. What it's saying is, if there is some piece of this product, machine, whatever, that can break, and you run this machine, eventually that piece will break. So make sure you have a system in your machine that will fail gracefully when that happens. It's have, about a, have a life cycle management to handle the eventual failure. Understanding where failures can happen and being able to account for them and to deal with them. It's not about this won't work. It's about it's also, know where your system is has uh, pain points and and you know be able to cover them. It's also about the probability of certain failures and prioritizing them and, and funding the resolutions properly. It's not right. handling everything. Yeah. If something's exceedingly rare, maybe you accept the risk. Right. But I think that, like, um, if something is going to go wrong once every 5,000 times, then that's not super important unless you have something that's used a million times in a day and then it becomes really important. Like understanding mm -hmm. that piece of your thing and how it will fail and when it will fail is just a super important part of design. And I never really appreciated until I sort of re-looked at Murphy's Law again. And I think that under that light, Murphy's Law totally makes sense. And so I would encourage those, anybody who does look at Murphy's Law as purely cynical to think about it in that matter and understand, I think, better what Murphy's Law is trying to say. That's it. Sounds good. That's it. That's all I have yeah. on Ruby's That's a good point. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the last thing I got to talk about is LK99. Yeah. I mean, okay, so LK99, for those who are not aware, is this new thing in the news, which is a potential room temperature superconductor. Not just room temperature. Boiling water superconductor. I think this is my cue. Well, so well, all the superconductors we know Explain why you care. All the superconductors we know about are either superconducting at really, really extraordinarily low temperatures, so that that's where you get like your MRIs and stuff like that. You can do really cool things with superconductors, but unfortunately, they are rare to get situations into that. You can't say an MRI, MRI machine can only work because of superconductors, because mm -hmm. the very, very, very strong electromagnets that it makes. Right. The wires couldn't be big enough to handle the current if there was any resistance at all. It would heat up too much and just melt things. So okay. a superconductor is a – it's think of a wire that is of a certain state where it doesn't have any resistance. The electrons just go through it with no effort at all. Think about a light bulb. But the reason the light bulb lights up or uh, anything like that is because the wire gets really hot. Okay. Right. And that's because of the resistance of the wire. So imagine a light bulb that doesn't get hot at all. That would be a superconducting light bulb. It'd be useless as a light bulb because it wouldn't generate any heat. But as a transmission for electricity, wonderful because there's no So levels. just like light bulbs, high tension lines and stuff generate heat. And all the heat that's generated and all those electric wires all over the world is electricity doesn't get to two light bulbs and computers and stuff like that. So it's electricity that the power company has to make and we have to pay for because we fund the bottom line of the power company. Mm -hmm. But it gets lost in transmission. 
if all of those wires could be superconductors, there would be 8 to 10% more power for free. Right. Now, I would I would, would, would like to point out that even if that were the case, like, we have, we are now in not every place around here, but a lot of, a lot of uh, countries and a good portion of this country has replaced a lot of their lights with LEDs, a lot of their incandescent Especially, lights. Especially, what, a day or two days ago? Right. They're, 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 the, they're not really selling incandescent. You can't anymore. buy them yeah. now. Except for in certain situations, well, I, certain types of yeah. lights. But that has probably saved 20, 30 percent of energy. Mm-hmm. We still use, we use more energy. But than we, we use the first. We use more energy <laughs> because just because yeah exactly just because we, we're we're saving energy somewhere it doesn't actually mean that the but, energy consumption goes down. No, in fact, we fill it up with bullshit like Bitcoin. So, so um, superconductors they'll make the transmission simpler. Uh, a computer, you know, how your laptop gets hot. If your computer had all kinds of superconductor stuff in it wouldn't make any heat. All of the battery and all of the power that goes into the computer would cause it to do computation and light and stuff like that. There wouldn't be any wasted heat. Now, that's not realistic for a lot of reasons physically, but there are ways you can u- improve components if you had superconducting components. Room temperature superconductors would be... Uh, there would be a lot of GWIZ applications you wouldn't think you'd be able to do. One of them is uh, expelling magnetic fields, which superconductors do, which means you could have levitation, mm-hmm. which normally you can't get without a changing magnetic field. There's a, you there's a law against that. I, did you see the thing where you, a, a superconducting wire is basically a battery? Mm-hmm. You put the current into it and it just sits in it, there? It, 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 yeah, so uh, superconducting... You can treat a superconductor like a lot like a, a capacitor, essentially. You fill it with a current, and it'll just keep that current running forever, as long as it's staying in its superconducting range, and then you can release that current. So you can essentially make them into just really cheap batteries. Yeah. So, if, you, if you had a really cheap... So anyway, this, that's the superconductor. The story behind this whole thing is the South Korean lab said that they've come up with this new material that is superconducting, and... It runs the temperatures way higher than any other legitimate superconductor, um, including above room temperature, above like legit room to, temperature up, up to boil two hundred degrees. Yeah, which is nuts because the only superconductor we found were stuff that the the, the things that were called high temp. Like there, you could get superconducting relatively easy if you cool things down to incredibly low temperatures, like three Kelvin, like something super and, and high temp is like. 50, 60 50 Kelvin. Kelvin. Yeah. yeah. So, and, we're, and, and 50, 60 Kelvin is still like minus 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. I think like freezing is, is 370 Kelvin, something like that. Yeah. So, like that freezing water happens at 370 Kelvin. So that's cold. <laughs> and it, this is stuff that's like, yeah, like. So anything that can run in ambient temperature. Or even like hot water temperatures is crazy, and it's apparently easy to fabricate, right? Which is the good thing because that means it's also easy to confirm and and test. Yes, and so far, I've been paying attention to this. I've read some papers. And let me tell you, I don't understand them at all. I'm just not a material science guy. It, it's it's just stuff that is way over my head, way but beyond. It seems of like they're confirming that it 
there's something there, but the yield is really low. They're going to have better ways of fabricating yeah, it, or synthesizing the, the material. It seems like, if nothing else, there's something very novel about this configuration that was unknown before. And there's something happening. They're not sure whether it's true superconductivity or maybe like an increased diamagnetism, which again, I don't, I wouldn't be able to tell you a good ex- example of why, of what the differences are there. Uh, and I mean, it's only been eight days or so since the yeah, paper yeah. hit the preprint. But as you said, it's easy to replicate. So some places have already started. Uh, well, that's the thing. It's super exciting because you don't know every day there's new confirmations or insights mm-hmm. on this development. So if, if this is something really new, then it's a, I mean, there a lot of the advances in science in the past 10, 15 years have been material science. This would be just another really awesome bit of material science that we have now. It, it could be. Mm-hmm. And, and 99 times out of 100, these could-be's don't happen. But this could be like a, the thing of the generation. The fact that we're seeing not like people saying, nope, this doesn't work. But we're seeing stuff like, now there's something, huh? There's something here, right? There's that quote, which is that uh, science doesn't happen when people say Eureka. Science happens when people say, that's that's weird. <laughs> um, and so there's, there's hope here from what I've been seeing that there's something new and novel here. It could be the physics discovery of our generation. Or it could be just... And 99... The probability is 99 of 100 times it's not. Yeah. But I, I can't think of the last time where we've seen something this exciting that hasn't been, like, shut down, like, immediately. Yeah, yeah. The, especially because, again, it's easy to make. If there, Even if there's something not super connecting about it, there's something, there could be something novel here. And something that's easy to make and novel, there's lots of... I, I think it's worth explaining... Why we say could be shut down, isn't shut down, stuff like that, right? Because, like, it's it's how research works, right? You have a lab who does some research, and they publish a journal article. And they usually describe how they do it. And they, because science isn't science until someone else agrees with what you saw. Mm -hmm. So you need to get other laboratories to try to do what you did. So you give them enough information to, to replicate your experiments and your discoveries, you still own the rights to patent it and to make money on it, but right. you need other people to corroborate this thing or it's not science. It's yeah. something else. Yeah, and I think that um, there are some examples where one confirmation is enough, but only in the place where you can you, you have a extraordinarily well justified understanding of the experiment that they're that they've that they're continually running and they constantly release data from it in a way that is understandable such that you understand the environment that they're working in uh but like an example would be the higgs boson right that was i was actually confirmed by two teams but working under the same environment which is the lhc mm-hmm. but two separate things on, on the opposite side two separate separate detectors but yeah, in like, in like particle physics, we've talked about when there were blips and there were like the it looked uh, so. So one of the things you may hear is sigma, which is a, a, an idea of how far something is from from what you'd expect. It's about standard deviation from what you'd expect to see based on 
a null hypothesis. Uh, and like the the standard for discovery in particle physics, at least, is five sigma, which is something like the chances of this happening randomly are one in like a hundred million. But the chance of something happening a one sigma is about one in four, one in eight, something like that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm not, maybe I'm underdoing that. But like two sigma is like one hundred, three sigma is like one in uh, twenty thousand. It's logarithmic, so it gets larger the more you go out. But we've we've seen things like three point something sigma. You think, well, this happens one in twenty thousand. That's a rare thing. Well, no. No, one in twenty thousand. The 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 rate you do particle experiments, you're going to get some shit like that happening. Um, happening, you know. So a bunch of so that's why there's a lot of stuff and a lot of like thought about how rare something is because you're just gonna you're occasionally going to see things that are outside of the norm of what you'd expect. But then if you run the test again, you don't see it anymore. And so that's not science. That's just, look, we have equipment that has that isn't uh, perfect. Mm-hmm. We're not perfect. Faster than light. Faster than light neutrinos. That was at four something. Yeah. And that was somebody didn't check a fucking wire. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the, but no one was able to replicate it. No one. Mm-hmm. And that was a, and there were like 700 papers that theorists made about what this could mean for blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So uh, it was like 70 years ago. Yeah. There was another announcement. It was one of these oh shit announcements just like this one. And it was that they had evidence that they found faster than light travel of a particle, which okay. general relativity does not allow. Now, special relativity doesn't allow. I mean, it literally breaks physics. Yeah. This would This would have had so... The impact of this is extraordinary. But they had a good story. They had they had data. And they certainly published it so that other people tried to do the experiment and nobody could replicate it. So then it came back around to, okay, so why basically what Technically happened? I will say this. The paper was not saying this is a discovery. They're saying okay. we found an error. Yeah. What's wrong? Okay. Um but the directors of the experiment still got fired because of it. Really? Yeah. This was still like ridiculously huge and, and a major like event in the particle physics community. This was something that people had to resign over. But the paper itself was not as presumptuous as to say this is we have detected faster than light neutrinos. It was it was to say that this is our detection. Here's what we've done to get rid of errors. After we've done that, this still stands. What's wrong? And eventually, was what was wrong was you didn't check your cables, bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's right. When you have an extraordinary claim, it's a lot. Like it's you, your your mindset should be not eureka, but like what did I fuck up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so like when these guys have superconductors. Presumably, before they publish, they're like, "Okay, let's let's yeah. make sure." Yeah, you we... don't just say, "I found a superconductor. I'm going to publish right away." You say, "Oh, that's I did not expect that. What did I fuck up?" That is the first question that should be on mm-hmm. your mind. 
And you should try to then eliminate every possible. And when you got no, like we got no more fuck ups except for the wire that we didn't think about. Yeah. And we publish. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, sometimes you know, sometimes you're right, and sometimes you're wrong. I mean, look, they would have actually found fashion light neutrinos. It absolutely would have changed physics. Mm-hmm. I mean, changed everything. That's something that can't happen. Like. There are two things about the universe I could tell you that are true. Everything else, anything else beyond these two statements is going to be either incomplete or wrong or trivial. Okay? Here are the two statements. First one is that the speed of light is the same in all reference frames. This is special relativity. Included in this is that nothing can go faster than the speed of light as a consequence. And the second is a system at equilibrium can do no work. This is thermodynamics. So you can't break special relativity, you can't break thermodynamics. Those are the two rules. Everything else, any other thing that we've come up with is either an approximation, right? So it's not exact, or uh, a bit of a bit wrong, or absolutely trivial, considering what I just told you. Mm-hmm. But this was talking about breaking one of those two fundamental rules. Mm-hmm. That's that would be incredible. I mean, Nobel Prize doesn't doesn't cut it. So, yeah. of course you publish. <laughs> and then the chips fall where they may. Yes. And this is why people lose their jobs over it sometimes. So, if LK99 pans out, it's a new material science that makes a ambient temperature superconductor. It's going to change if it's if it's synthesizable and mass producible, it'll change our watches, our phones, our spaceships, or everything. I mean, yeah, the, like you said, like battery power becomes extraordinarily simple, um, storing large amounts of energy, mm-hmm. really simple. Although we'll say all superconductors have a problem with like quenching and things like that. Like it's not, it's not just magic happens. There's still problems. Superconductors have a have a range which they can operate. You can't just put endless current in them. I, I started reading, and again, like you, like like people are talking about, like how there's like flux pinning, like is the traditional uh, that, way. That's to... really that's Meissner effect. Yeah, that's that's how you can tell when there's a superconductor flux pinning. But this doesn't seem to be flux pinning. Yeah, if it is superconducting. You know, like uh, not I have no the videos idea. they've shown does not look like flux pinning to me. Okay, I have no idea. Like, like I read that, I'm like. Uh, I don't know. That would take a little bit to explain, but it's super cool. Okay. Um, but All right. This is my cue. We're almost done, so. You guys can continue to geek oh, out. Well, I do want to geek out about nuclear weapons. Uh, there was a thing I forgot. Go oh, ahead yeah. and geek out. Okay. Can I? Hello, um, And just for the record, I'm not just dipping out on the show. It's man. okay. No, you're you're tired. I get it, and, I, and you're not going to be really probably interested in this nuclear weapons talk. But I well, nuclear weapons are interesting, but I'm really tired. Yeah, I get it. We well, can always listen to the show afterwards. Nuke them all. You guys enjoy. Thank you all. See you next time. Bye, Shmuley. Shmuley. I'm stuck. <laughs> I can't get She's trapped. Attached. She's trapped. <laughs> Okay. All right. Hey, man. It hurts. I already turned it back down. Good night. Good night. Okay.
nuclear weapons. I tried to explain this to my to to my parents and and my sister, and they did not find this fascinating. But I felt like you, because <laughs> I do. Yes. Um. So you know, Oppenheimer is all about the first nuke, uh, and um, what do you know about nuclear weapons? I guess I should start with that. I think I understand them fairly well. Yeah. Uh, all right. So nuclear weapons, you take a um, subcritical amount of radioactive material. A fissile material. Fissile. That's it. Fissile material. So subcritical means that the neutrons zooming about don't hit enough other things to start a chain reaction. And you take two uh, masses of subcritical material and you bring them together to be critical. So then the neutrons zooming around hit enough of the things to start a chain reaction. And the chain reaction generates energy. Right. Well, that's... Okay, okay, keep going. All right. So that's, that's fission. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, okay. that's a nuclear reactor. Yes, so that's fission. And then nuclear weapons, you know, triggers that way. Um, what do I know about how it actually like makes so megatons me... of of energy? I, I mean, I know there's, I know part of the way they bring the cr- subcritical masses together is with a tradition, uh, a chemical explosion. They slam everything together. Into... Right, but well, okay. So let me interject here and add some stuff. So. You have subcritical masses of a fissile material. A fissile material means a material that is open to being split apart when neutrons hit it. So what happens in this case is that uh, you get a release of energy through uh, the strong nuclear force, which is holding these atoms together. And when the neutron hits it, it kind of goes out of balance a lot faster than it normally would have and then breaks apart. And you get energy released in the form of uh, photons, and in the form of uh, neutrons and occasionally other detritus. Uh, the neutrons are what's important because when neutrons uh, can then release and hit other particles, uh, and if you have a subcritical mass, well, that the neutrons are likely going to just leave. If you have a critical mass, you have enough to sustain a self, have a self-sustaining reaction. What you want to go for nuclear weapons is you want to go super critical. This is when you have an exponential buildup. Mm-hmm. So every so every neutron is very likely to to hit another neutron and start and keep going and going and going. So your chain becomes exponential as in growth. So you start with remember these are atoms; these are tiny things on on our scale, and you're getting you know a, 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 in terms of energy a couple uh, tens of electron volts, maybe hundreds of electron volts. Nothing much for you and me, but if you have an exponential reaction happening in something that has 10 to the 25 atoms in it, in terms of then, uh, and that's like a gram of the, of it, then you are talking about it. This is the, the reaction that happens, happens super quick. And then the rest of it, like in the order of nanoseconds, and then all the energy is sort of left over. And then just sort of does what energy does, which is you have a whole bunch of heat in the whole area that's going to fucking light shit on fire. Uh, it's been a long time since I've read it, so I don't know if it holds up. But when I was a teenager, 
Uh, I was a big Tom Clancy fan, mm-hmm. and one of his books. Oh, oh Some the, of All Fears. Some of All Fears had a great, and it's it's a it, t- spoilers. It's about terrorists uh, setting off a nuclear weapon at the Super Bowl in Denver. Yeah, and and other stuff. But there is an entire chapter about the few milliseconds of admission. Three shakes. Three shakes. The name of the chapter. Three shakes because people at Los Alamos. Called the nuclear reactor reaction happening in the three shakes of a lamb's tail, which is like from the Bible, mm-hmm. which is, I believe, 30 nanoseconds, because that's how long it takes for the nuclear, uh, for the fissile part of the nuclear weapon to do its duty, mm-hmm. basically. But what's interesting about that is so what you have is you, as you mentioned, like there are two, there are two designs that were made at Los Alamos. One was sort of the gun, where you have a uh, uh, a donut on one end being propelled, like then then on top of the hole of the donut, and when they got close enough, they that's when it would become super critical, uh, and you had and and that was pretty much they didn't even have to test it; they knew it would work. Uh, the other issue was. Plutonium and plutonium had the problem where you couldn't do the gun type design because it would do something. So the big problem with nuclear weapons, with with fission uh, as a whole, is that what you're doing is you're this stuff is making a whole bunch of energy and it's blasting apart as it's doing that. Even you know the the forces are are small, but the, you know they're going to compound. And so you have this issue where the the item goes only super critical for the short period of time, and then as it's being blown apart by the reaction that's happening, it loses super criticality and it stops being fissionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and plutonium did that too quick, so you couldn't make the gun with that. So that's when they developed the, the plutonium was a lot easier to make, which was why uh, and you usually needed a lot less of it. So that was why the plutonium became the a preferred weapon, but the uranium was something they were doing at the same time. But anyway, so the plutonium, you had to do this implosion method where you squeeze it upon itself to create that supercriticality, and then it's going to blow itself apart. All the same time this was happening, this guy Teller was working on uh, something that he realized, which was that if you got things hot enough, and the only way you could get things hot enough was actually to have a vision device. <laughs> but if you did that, you could start doing actually nuclear fusion, which is what the sun does, which is when you actually fuse atoms, and that gives you even more energy. Uh, and so you actually go from being able to, like, so the, the the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, and I think the training test, is something like 1% efficient in terms of the radioactive material that was used and how many much actually got, like, Turned in actually got fissioned. Yeah, some like some ridiculously small amount, uh, and so the idea was you could get instead of tens of kilotons, you could you could potentially get megatons with fusion, uh, and that turned out to be true. But modern nuclear rep, not modern nuclear weapons. Here's the problem with 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 fusion weapons as a whole, and it's the problem with nuclear weapons that, as, as they start out, and really the problem, the reason why you don't see nuclear weapon, you don't see everybody floating around nuclear weapons because frankly building a nuclear device for any large enough nation state is not going to be a big issue 
it's known how to do it. The physics is well understood. You you become a pariah if you do it and you don't you don't have the right things. But that's you know if you if you want to go that way, you absolutely can. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have the industry capable of making it, it's certainly capable. But the problem is weaponizing it. The problem is making it into something that you can attach to a missile that's something like a hundred pounds or something like that. Uh, that's a huge problem. And you know, th- you know, the first two bombs were like you know tons, <laughs> and they were dropped off these gigantic bombers, and that's just yeah. not going to f- fly. Um, the the fission, but the fusion bombs they made were just too big, uh, the and and hard to maintain. That's a real problem. So modern weapons have a fusion part of them, but they're actually uh, boosted fission devices. So what they do is they have that fission part that starts the fusion reaction. And what's more important about the fusion reaction, though, is not the energy from the fusion reaction. It only contributes a bit. Remember, as I said, the fission stuff is blown apart, and that's why it can't continue to be fissionable. It loses its supercriticality. The nice thing about fusion is the neutron flux is ridiculous. Suddenly, it doesn't matter whether you're in supercriticality. The neutron flux is enough to make a subcritical mass. To make the, of, of, the fissional of material fission. So what's the um, efficiency go up to? I don't know exactly, yeah. but I, it, I think it's like along the lines of like 70%. Like it's ridiculous. Like I, th- I think that go, going from so one to like Using seven, fusion just to make more neutrons. Right. Like that's more valuable than the fusion energy. And then you can... You can make relatively small fusion devices because you can concentrate on 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 having even a dialable version mm-hmm. of a nuclear weapon, and so that's why yeah the modern weapons are almost all boosted fission. It's about using the fusion to actually make it so that the fission happens more efficiently. It's a neutron pump. Yeah. Well, it, it, neutron pump. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You you and and again, the whole process is going to take you know hundreds of milliseconds maybe. And then it, then it's just left to be, okay, well, this energy has been released, and what happens, happens. And that is similar in some way, you know, that shouldn't surprise people because it's similar to, like, how a chemical bomb works, right? You're, it's just you're doing it with electrons as opposed to nucleus, so that's why you get a huge jump in energy. But you're dumping all this energy into the background, and it's just going to blow things apart, and... So you have a so you have a big enough amount of chemical explosives, you're going to get a huge bang at even a mushroom cloud, mm-hmm. because there's nothing about the nuclear part that makes it that, that makes it any different. I mean, like in, other than you get obviously it's denser, the, denser. I mean, you get radioactive stuff from the debris, right. but there's nothing in terms of well, energy the, wise, the energy, energy wise, wise yeah. it's denser. So the the physical expansion of the thing could be different from what you mm-hmm. can achieve chemically. But if you can get the chemical stuff dense enough, then it's the same Yeah, it's thing. the same thing. It's just expansion of energy. So that's why a big, a big conventional bomb can be just as devastating as a nuclear bomb, at least in, in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a big conventional chemical bomb will likely pollute areas, but maybe not as not salt the earth wise as some types of nuclear stuff. But 
nuclear weapons also seem to, I don't know exactly why, but like there's, um, Hiroshima is an occupied city. Yeah. And Fukushima is not going to be an occupied city for hundreds of years. So there's a, a difference in like the fallout of. There is definitely, there's a whole bunch of ways in which they've been different. I mean, the the fallout from a plutonium weapon is significant, but it's very small area of the actual blast. And it's, uh, especially on that level, and like, obviously the, the larger it is, the, you know, the, the more that stuff is spread out. But also it doesn't last as long. But you can engineer fallout to last really long if you wanted to. Uh, for the most part, those just don't make good weapons. So you don't see people making weapons. Like the weapons that, that, that both sides have are mostly there for deterrence anyway, but they generally arrange in the 200 to 50 to 200 kiloton range because other if you go beyond that, you're just destroying too much. It's just kind of a, a worthless thing. Like a huge 50 megaton weapon is just not a, it's, it, it's only an intimidation thing. It's not a weapon of war. It's not even a weapon of conquering. It's a weapon of devastation. And it, it's, it's useless in any other context. And in general, that's not what you want for the only planet you actually live on. I saw, I've been watching a YouTube channel, Kyle Hill. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Okay. So he has this whole series on like, you know, like orphan sources and th- those are, those can be really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but then I saw one, it was part, it happened right after World War II, where like people were standing underneath an air detonated, mm-hmm. you know, nuclear bomb, a bright flash, but like no radiation and stuff because it was so, that, I wish I had more details. I didn't know I was going to be telling this story, but it kind of fascinated me. You could be like so proximate to a nuclear explosion yeah. and not have your skin fall off. You well, know? I mean, the interesting thing would be like in, in space, a nuclear weapon is not that crazy of a weapon because there's not an atmosphere to ignite and therefore cause the, you know, get the energy to, to spread out. You have a, you know, point of energy that, that gets hot for a little bit, but pretty pretty quickly, especially if you know, it spans out spherically, mm-hmm. goes to nothing. And maybe you got a neutron flux in an area that, that can be kind of high, but in space, there's plenty of space. So that's not going to be a huge yeah. deal. Uh, so, yeah, like, as weapons, nuclear weapons are pretty, pretty shitty in space, but they're great in atmospheres, because it's also why, like, nuclear reactor, you don't have to shield yourself if you put one on the moon. So let's get a bunch of nuclear reactors on the moon. Then you don't have to shield. Yeah. You know, thing it'll spray some stuff and it explodes, let's say. But uh, modern nuclear reactors don't really explode anyway. Nuclear reactions are, nuclear reactors are kind of an understood problem now. Uh, so you're not, you don't, that isn't likely. And um. Yeah, so the like the Fukushima was an example of a very old nuclear reactor. As a matter of fact, we haven't been able to build yeah. a lot. If he did it on the moon, you would need like 
you don't have water, so you'd have to cool it. So otherwise, you need that's a massive problem. cooling is a problem. Massive, like you do have a planet fins. there, so there's something. There's a sink. There's like in space, you don't have the option of even having like a surface. Well, like RTGs radiate infrared. That's yes. how they lose their energy. Yeah, it's it's purely through radiation, and that's the most the least efficient way yeah. of of uh, of radiating your heat away. So at least you've got some conduction. If you're on a planet, but you don't have convection mm-hmm. and convection is, you know, not quite as efficient as conduction, but it, it turns out to be generally more efficient because you can, you can spread that out in space. Mm-hmm. Whereas conduction, especially if you're like attached to the ground, you don't nearly have that kind of luxury. I guess you could do like a bunch of like fins underground, but that's a lot of work. Almost like a super cap, like yeah. in re- like uh, use that surface area to kind of radiate away the heat. And then you probably do that in space infrared. It's just gonna just be yeah. You need nanostructures with tons of surface area. Yeah, yeah. And then how do you get them to not to heat up to the point where they fail? Yeah. The um. I mentioned Kyle Hill did you, the, in those orphan sources. Mm-hmm. Some of that shit's like downright scary. Like, you know, these people like picking up these things and wearing them on, putting them in their pockets or wearing them on their back. I mean, it's scary in one sense, but in the other sense, it's like, you know, you have people here who pick up mushrooms in the woods and, and you know, like it's, it's kind of the same deadliness. It, it, unless someone actually was trying to spread it, it would not really be likely to spread to a whole bunch of people. Well, there was the the one in South America where it was an old CT scan or something right. like that. Yeah, I remember. And the that. building shut down. They found this thing that glowed in the dark, and they split it up and gave some powder to all their family, and they were painting their fingers yeah. of it and stuff. And um, it like shut down like two towns, like a thousand people. That's kind of the worst thing that you can imagine. Is 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 that type of thing happening where somebody takes it and is like, this, isn't this cool? Let me spread it to everybody. Mm-hmm. But that at some point, at least in the modern world, somebody's going to be like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> at least you hope. Well, okay. So when I was hiking last week, where Vermont, there was these rocks that were like kind of opalescent. They were really cool. Uh, I grabbed the little chunk of one and put it in my pocket. And then like, I started thinking like, what if like, it's stupid, but like, like, I never considered this before watching Kyle. Mm-hmm. Like, what if I'm irradiating my crotch right now? You know, <laughs> I don't know. It was just like, cause like in those areas with the rocks and the stuff, like it's a good, like there's radioactive material. There. Yeah, no, there's like, probably all alpha particles. I'd probably be fine cause I have skin in the way, but I wouldn't keep it in your pocket for days. Yeah. But in general, but it's like when you watch these things about these people that have this r- highly radioactive stuff and they don't know it, like, what a dummy. How do they not know from pop culture about radioactivity? And then I put a rock in my pocket. I'm like, what if I'm the dummy, you know? Well, no, like, but I, I, what I'm saying is you could be the dummy, yeah. but if you then spread it around to, let's say, 50 people, one of those 50 you would expect would be like, wait a minute, what is this? You know, they're, 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 so you would expect that over the course of, modern times that wouldn't spread too much because somebody would start to make a noise. Although we live in a world now where people are going to make up their own narratives about shit. Mm -hmm. And 
we're much more widely exposed to that being an option. So I don't know. Then there's the other story about the people in, I think it was Hungary, where they found an RTG in the woods and they used it to keep themselves warm in mm. camp in the winter. So they were mm. wearing them like backpacks and stuff. That sounds bad. Yeah, they got, they got fucked up. I think one of the three lived, but the other two. Yeah, you don't want to put a, a cracked open RTG right on your back. I mean, it, it that's a, a critical, or at least subcritical device, right? It, it, it's producing a reaction. It's making more of itself or enough it to... Was, it was warm. Hot, oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So they cooked on it. They wore used it as a, you know, sleeping bag warmer, you yeah. know. Boy, oh boy. Uh, that's Kyle Hill on YouTube, if anyone likes these morbid... Yeah. He also nuclear. does, like, pop size shit. So his new stuff's not good. No, he used to do Beyond Science, which was on the direction that was good. His new stuff I haven't found is enjoyable, but the nuclear stuff is always very interesting. He's he has a real like he you can tell he loves that shit. So he puts a, he puts all his effort into that. Yeah, uh, and I'm like, oh, this is good. I watched several of those nuclear diaries or whatever, and then like I subscribed, and now all I see is the nonsense that he puts out today, and it's just not good. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't say it's no good, but there are other science channels that are sure. better. But it's okay. So he, it's almost like uh, Vsauce, where everything he does these days is shorts. And yeah. it's like, when's Vsauce going to put out another episode? <laughs> <laughs> I think he did like three years ago. Something. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. It's been, it's been but he, But that's fine because he, he's got his brand and he's making his money on, on other shit. So, yeah. It's stuff so good. That's it. I miss it. Yeah. I want, and his shorts are just. Yeah, it used to be like every month you get one. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's enough. Yeah, I think so. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the post show. I am uh, Jordan Hops or uh, Jasper. Jasper. Jasper Hops. Hops. I'm Schmegley. <laughs> and we'll talk to you again real Schmegley soon. Schmegley Foo Foo.